Welcome to the football pod. My name is Konstantin Eckner and please welcome my co-host Abel Mezaros. Hi everyone, uh, thanks for following us. Thanks for uh, the great feedback that we had on the episode with Grant Wall. And, you know, I want to bring you these kind of shows where we talk about the people that influence football, the people that shape the game that we like, and want to give you them in a long-form conversation podcast. I hope you're excited just as much as I am, Constantine. Absolutely. Um, I'm really excited about this in the project, and I'm also very thankful. We are thankful to those who have listened to our first show with Grand Wall and those who are now listening for the first time. Um, really thankful to you guys. If you want to find our show on the platforms you know, you can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, TuneIn, and even on YouTube. Just search for the football pod. And if you want to support us, please visit patreon.com slash the football pod. Um, what do we got today? Who's our, who's our guest today? I think uh, we have somebody who's really, really exciting. Why don't you uh, introduce uh, him to us, Constantine? Well, you're right. Um, once again, we have a really exciting guest. He is, um, I believe, a true icon of football journalism and a main pillar of ESPN's football coverage. It is none other than Gabriel Marcotti. So, Gabriel, maybe you can talk a little bit about the show you do with uh, Julian Laurent, the Gap and Jules show on ESPN that's broadcasting there. Um, what's what's the idea behind it? Is it kind of like the I know football version of Undisputed, or what? What do you want yeah. to do with the show? So the genesis was well, obviously, I um, I guess this is really going to date me and show how old I am. But uh, before I joined ESPN. Um, I did a podcast for uh, for the Times of London. In fact, it was one of the one of the few things where I kind of started it in the sense that nobody was really podcasting much back in uh, in two thousand six, I think it was. Um, and so, a colleague of mine, Guillaume Balaguer, we went to our boss and said, "Hey, what if we do this?" I'm like, "What's a podcast? It's like a radio show, and you listen to it on your." Uh, well, back then it was on your iPod. What's an iPod? You know, like it's one of those things, right? <laughs> um, yeah. But I'm very grateful that my bosses there embraced it. And so I did it for a long time, built up an audience. Um, and so, you know, ESPN asked me, like, can you do podcasts with us now? And one of the big things was, one of the things I don't like about podcasts and I don't like about Radio. I've worked in radio a lot um, here in England, both at both at Talksport and then uh, um, at Five Live. Is I don't like this idea of ooh now let's turn to our uh, German football expert, Mister So and So, usually Ralph Honigstein, and he's like yeah, and so blah blah blah. And then he talks for like five minutes, and I said move on. Now let's go and talk to you know our uh, Newcastle expert, and there's no freaking discussion and. I, the basis of the podcast is there is enough of a common currency of sport that hopefully most of our listeners watch and that the host should be able to talk to. So when I was at the Times, we generally focused on the big six, not because I don't care about the rest of football, but because that's kind of 
you know, everybody has an opinion to some, everybody has a general sense of what's happening to a Manchester United or Arsenal. Um, and one of the great luxuries of being able to do it with Julian Lawrence, who's somebody who, who covers football across Europe, is, you know, he knows what's going on at these clubs because he watches them and he follows them. You know, it's not rocket science. It's it's, it's Barcelona, it's Bayern, it's Juve, it's United, it's, it's cities, whatever. So the idea is to provide, like, kind of a one-stop shop um, for somebody who maybe, you know, doesn't know what happened in the weekend or midweek, somebody who who values our opinions, but also somebody who can relate to it, somebody who's not being talked to by, you know, the wise man on the radio who is the expert of this and that. And look, and I, I, some people don't like it. Some people don't like the interruptions. You know, I, I've had a lot of criticism, but you know what? I find that that's when I talk about football with my friends and it's the environment I was raised in. Yeah, you do get a bit heated and you do interrupt and you don't just, you know, sit there and be like, this is my idea. Let me talk uninterrupted for two minutes and now give me your idea. It's not how it works, you know? At least not in my world. Not, to me, that's not realistic how people talk about football. Right. That's that's a good point because, like, the, the shows that Constantine and I have done together and, and I think even even some of the other ones outside of this podcast, it's it's there's almost, like, a little too much interruption. But but I agree with you. Like, I think, you know, anywhere you go, whether, you know, from, from Italy to, to Hungary to wherever, like if people, let's say, like, any time, you know, talk normally in a, in a barber shop or whatever, wherever they talk sports, it, it's, it's natural to, to interrupt each other. And I think, um, I think TV kind of tries to capture that, but, but maybe podcasts can, can tend to be sometimes a little too polished, but obviously, yeah, you can, you can go a lot of different ways. And that, that's the nice thing about it is that you can get, get whatever you, you, you like. It, it's a lot easier, of course, to edit uh, a podcast, right? So sometimes you get these podcasts that are, that are way edited. One of my favorite podcasts is uh, it's a New York public radio podcast called on the media. And they wanted this, they wanted this episode kind of lifting the lid on how their podcast was put together and sort of revealing all the stuff in the conversation and interviews that, that they took out, which is, you know, all the natural pauses, the repetitions, you know, me just saying just now, you know, and when you listen to it, yeah, it sounds great, but it's not really a discussion podcast. It's something else, and and that's fine too. You know, it's there's room for a lot of different types of way, uh, types of podcasts and different ways manners of speaking. Yeah, there's. I mean, there's a lot of those kind of shows. I I I noticed them in in football. There's a couple of those which which tend to be now more like I think when we were talking about with with Grant uh, the other day, he he's going to have one about Freddie Adu that's uh, that's coming out soon and which tends to be more on the produced side. And obviously I think like the football today has a lot of those. And I think those, those are really good as well, but it's, it's, yeah, it's down to, it's down to what you want, but it's, it, it, you know, what you do is, is um, with, with, with Jules, I guess is, is that sort of, as you mentioned, one-stop shop. And so want to kind of turn to um, some of the topics that we want to discuss today, which is, uh, is something you probably uh, will have discussed uh, either on ESPN FC or some of the other, outlets and i think it's kind of the the elephant in the room the the pandemic that's changing you know football and and i mean even even this week like we saw you know like doma goivida who was playing in a, in a friendly in the halftime he you know or some some people like realized that he was positive for covid and had to be substituted um the hungarian team with with marco rossi was like 
last last minute he it was decided that uh, he he was tested for covid so he had to like basically coach via like a phone so there's like all these things you wouldn't have ever thought possible even just like a few years ago that uh, that that you can do and uh, there's internationals when you know these, these players and, and teams are playing you know three matches in six days um so what's what's your sort of assessment right now of this pandemic and the reaction of european football in terms of even just 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 kind of starting at the starting at the international level so i i think the first thing to say is that you know we don't know what best practice is right we've never been in this situation before so any criticism i think has to be modulated by the fact that the governing bodies and the people who make both sporting decisions and medical decisions for us, they don't have a playbook for, for what is right. You know, they've, they've, they've built up a bit of one from, cause obviously this has been around at least in Europe since March. Um, but, but it's hard to know how to proceed. It's hard to know what's right. The, the science keeps changing. So I think that's the first basic point. Um, I also think, and, and, and it's difficult because I sound like a politician here, but there's competing there's competing governing bodies, right? So there's there's the sporting body, there's the medical protocol, there's national health authorities, there's often in many constituencies there's local health authorities, and then there's this business with the testing. So you probably you may be aware, uh, you know, for example, of of cases like like Ashraf Hakimi, who you know. He tests positive for UEFA, and then he gets like five negative tests in a row, testing for Inter. Um, and Inter, incidentally, are using a UEFA lab to test him. Right? Um, I was talking to somebody the other day that you know says that while the test is is accurate, that the, the, in terms of you know the, the types of tests that they do, they give very few false negatives. In fact, they give almost zero false negatives. Um, only at Bayern. Sorry, only at Bayern. If you yeah. if you followed the ones with uh, was it Zule, Constantine, and who, who else was it? Gnabry and a couple of the other guys. Maybe Turkse as well. Yeah. Was it they were false negatives? Um, I think they might have been false positives, but uh, no, no, that's, yeah. what, that's what I was saying. Like they, they, you get false positives, right? Uh-huh. But not but false. false negatives. So I guess the most well, you really don't want is a false negative, right? From a public health perspective, you don't want the guy to say, "Hey, you're clear," and then he goes around and infects everybody, right? But those false positives that you mentioned at Bayard, you know, that's an issue. Um, it's complicated by the fact we have a case in Italy right now at, at, at Lazio, as you might have read, where, you know, they send these guys to this other lab where seemingly very few people ever test positive. Um, and then they kind of say, oh, look, they're injured, so they don't have to take the, I mean, this is the allegation against them. There's both a criminal inquiry and a sporting inquiry against them. Um, they say, well, it's an accredited lab. It's not our fault. You know, it's a very messy situation. I look in the Premier League, right? I, I'm, I'm based in London. And you look at, it seems that nobody ever tests positive, right? Even though the, we have had Kai Havertz, for example, high profile testing positive, but that was in a, in a Champions League test. And yeah, I'm left a little bit befuddled and I don't, I don't quite get this. And, you know, but... Like they're playing games. Hopefully, people are staying safe, um, and hopefully, it's not having a knock-on effect. And you kind of have to put your faith in others that that people are making the right decisions. 
So I guess one other thing or one conclusion we have come to already during this pandemic is that like basically um, because there's a lack of stadium crowds and um, because the basically the, the financial models have um, changed, not on purpose, but um, just due to the fact that the pandemic has gotten a hold of football, um, that certainly the gap between those at the top and the rest, um, you know, if, if it's the Premier League or even like in general in, in the football landscape, um, those who are rich and those who don't have the kind of financial resources that the gap will, of course, widen and will be will be bigger um, when we come out of this pandemic. I'm, I'm not sorry. I'm not sure that that's entirely that that's entirely accurate. Um, that's what I thought. But having looked into it a little bit. So the teams that are hit hardest by the pandemic um, are teams that rely or get a highest higher amount of their revenue from from box office, right? If, if you think of sort of, you know, three large buckets of revenue that, that, that clubs get, I mean, there's actually four. One is player trading, but let's leave that to one side because that's generally nonsense. Or not nonsense, but it's, it's more like accounting stuff. Um, but in terms of how clubs get cash, you're talking about merchandising and sponsorship and stuff like that. And that's been hit a little bit, not that much. You're talking about broadcast revenue. And in general, you've had, you know, rebates from broadcasters um, in most leagues, but hasn't been enormous. And then you've had match day income, which, of course, has generally gone down to zero. But that disproportionately affects clubs who had a ton of match day income. So, for example, a club like Barcelona or, you know, I'm guessing, you know, Schalke or Manchester United who get big crowds, um, that is going to affect them a lot in terms of actually getting in cash. A club that generally gets smaller crowds, um, like, for example, Chelsea, um, because they have a smaller stadium, uh, or maybe Bayer Leverkusen, I don't know, um, they're going to be less affected buy it. Now, obviously, everybody's affected, right? Um, but I think that's an important distinction to make. And I think, and, and the reason cash is important is uh, and, and there's a there's a wonderful um, guy, uh, he, he's got a Twitter account, he blogs as well, but most, he puts most of his data on Twitter named Swiss Ramble, who's definitely worth following, and you guys are familiar with him. And he explains the difference between profit and cash. Um, the way football clubs are run, is cash is really important. Every every euro that comes in the door generally goes back out in wages or transfers or, or, or whatever. And when that supply of cash stops, then you're in big trouble. So then you either have an owner like, like they had at Chelsea or, or, or obviously Chelsea and Man City are the two obvious ones because those are not just very rich owners. They're owners who have access to enormous amounts of cash and liquidity. But also other clubs, like like at Milan, for example, where you know the club's in a much worse financial position because of everything that happened before. But you know their owner literally is a hedge fund who sits on a big pile of cash, so they can keep things going from that perspective. Um, and I think that's been one of the one of the single biggest differences. A, a club like Liverpool, where you would figure you know they win the Champions League, they win the Premier League, they're growing, great commercial contracts and everything. Yeah, but. They have an owner who is very much a businessman who believes that if he has money, he needs to put his money to work rather than sitting on a pile of it. And so from a cash perspective, 
they're actually, you know, very, very limited relative to relative to other clubs. And it's a real struggle. And I think a lot of people don't seem to fully grasp that difference, which is why I just wanted to wanted to highlight that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I I came up with or came up with the the hypothesis basically based not so much maybe if you look at uh, let's say you compare Bayern Munich and Bayer Leverkusen for instance. Uh, then I totally agree. Bayer Leverkusen small stadium, small crowds, so match day revenue doesn't uh, isn't that large of a percentage in terms of what they what they have on their balance sheet. Um but also I think the difference between let's say the um, in some in some countries um, between the top in the league and the bottom that the that the 18th or 20th um, team receives a disproportionately smaller amount or smaller number of um, television rights money. So and sometimes uh, match day revenue can be somewhat of an equalizer if you're a team or a club that has a large audience and a you know packed stadium every other Sunday or Saturday. And of course, that's now gone. But also, on top, or as as an addition, I think the the financial gap between, let's say, the, the you know in Germany, the Bundesliga and the Bundesliga two, in terms of television rights money, or even in, I think in England, France, it's basically the same. So the gap is really wide. Um, so and when television rights money is the only money you get, basically, right now, um, then and, and that gets goes on for months um, or. I mean, we don't know. Maybe a year, basically. If you um, then we enter March um, or May, we don't know now. But it could be an entire year where there's almost no match day revenue in terms of ticket sales and merchandise sales um, in the stadium. So then, I guess that the gap gets bigger because um, these the smaller clubs or second division clubs, third division clubs, certainly they can't can't make up for it, and they can't. They have only the one avenue. Um, to to get revenue and um, but they get disproportionately smaller smaller uh, money than compared to you know the Bayern Munichs and Liverpools and so on. So I guess on, a, on an overall landscape, um, I think the the gap could be could be enlarged. I completely agree with you. And look, the gap was was enormous um, was enormous to begin with and growing. Right? I mean, I've, I feel like I've written about polarization um, for years, and you know, there, there's this thing about um, you know, the, um, I'm blanking on it now, but like, you know, where we kind of, uh, we kind of assume things are no normal. I think that's right. The Overton window, right. Where, where we move the parameters of what is normal. And we think it's normal that the same teams win all the time. We think it's normal that, you know, uh, I mean, even in England, right. Where people always talk about the premier league about how, Oh, look, it's not like those. It's not like, it's not, it's not like, it's not like Bayern or Juve win every year. I'm like, yeah, but this is a league where, the, the gap between number six and number seven in terms of resources, in terms of wage bill, is so enormous, right? Number six being Spurs and number seven being Everton or, or you know, or Leicester, what by Everton, I would guess, in terms of resources and spend and wage bill, that the only reason the top six don't fit, the only area where they don't finish in the top six, is, uh, is the big six don't finish top six in a season, is if they massively screw up and have to change managers or do something really, really stupid, and there's a freak occurring. And this happens very, very rarely. Although, as we've seen, um, you know, with Arsenal and United and stuff, it's happened, right, in recent years. Um, I, 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 So, on the polarization aspect, I'm, let's be very clear, I, I'm completely with you. Um, I think it is a huge issue for for lower division clubs. Um, you know, 
and then this is part of the problem. And when we talk about the landscape, we mix professional clubs where, you know, 95% of their income is match day revenue. Uh, we put them in the same conversation with, you know, Real Madrid and Manchester United and Juventus, who are basically entertainment companies with a football team attached, right? Um, they don't belong in the same conversation. Yes, it's all football. So, for example, the European Clubs Association, they put out their scenario, and look, they're certainly not conservative in making their projections, and they, they projected, well, we're going to lose in excess of 4 billion euros over two seasons. And I looked at it, and I'm like, oh, wow, that's a lot of money. And then I looked at it, and I'm like, well, actually, 4 billion euros in you know, unrealized revenue over two years it's a decline of 8.9%, right? I mean, you know, compare this to the airline industry or, or the hotel industry or whatever, it's not that bad. And you have a big luxury, which, and this applies to all football, that the airline industry doesn't have. Um, 70 to 80% of your costs um, go in labor costs, right? Um, to, pay your, to pay your players or player acquisition costs. And the great thing about players is that they don't get lifetime employment contracts. You know, it's not like it's not like working a union job in Germany, right? I mean, at most, you're on the hook for one, two, three years. This is an industry where 25% of your, your workforce moves on by attrition every year because contracts expire. And on top of that, in many cases, you can also get rid of somebody if he makes too much money by finding him another club. And you even get some money back for that. Obviously, in many cases, obviously there's you know players who you can't shift for many reasons or whatever, right? So, you know, I guess what I'm trying at, my sympathy for those big clubs wasn't quite so strong. Um, and I looked at this and I said, well, maybe we need better oversight. Maybe we need to think about these business models a little bit. Um, a little bit differently. I, I agree with you about the lower division clubs. I think people also need to have a conversation. And I know this is not a problem in Germany, but you know, certainly in England, you know, do we need 130, 140 professional clubs? You know, going right down to the conference. Um, I, I I appreciate the value that a club has within the community, but you know, is my local League Two club? going to have the same value to the community if I'm paying the reserve right back 300 pounds a week or 200 pounds a week, or even if they're semi-professional? Like, do they stop having that value that that, that, that we ascribe to football? Um, I, I don't know. I do hope we come out of this with better governance and better rules so that and more oversight so that these situations, you know, don't appear again. Yeah, I mean, like, What's interesting is that when you you mentioned Schalke, which is which is like one of the clubs that has been you know almost like destroyed, uh, certainly in the you know uh, certainly in a performance sense by by this because they're like two hundred million in debt and they're 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 the ones who you know are losing um, the gate receipts and like which I think you you're also writing in your piece and the, for the big clubs it's like three to five million I think I think even for Dortmund it's it's somewhere around that like four million or so per per match and. Um, I was also thinking about some of the other leagues that that maybe even not even the top five leagues like like a Turkish league, right? Which which probably doesn't do a lot of money from uh, doesn't earn a lot of money from TV rights. Uh, I mean, you know, 
typically those those league rights don't don't cost that much and their revenue is completely gate receipts right and and um i i, I saw just in terms of even the transfers they were making it's it's basically a, a lot of those clubs are, are very very cash poor and and you can see that as as a result of, of of what they do or what happens to that league which which typically has been kind of a, a, a you know a a league where you can you can always go to in the twilight of your career, and I think you, you kind of kind of like what you saw China scaling back as well. So I, the the nine percent which you mentioned is is, is staggering, but I, I share with you the uh, maybe the, the the tamed empathy towards these uh, giant uh, as you called them entertainment divisions with with some footballing attached. Yeah, I mean, like you know. Again, when we talk about people who've been hit by this, and like, I, I'm not going to be, I'm not unsympathetic to these clubs, but everybody talks about, oh, the club wants to show ambition, wants to grow, and everything, and that's great. But equally, the club first and foremost has to be has to be sustainable, and it is one of the luxuries of a football club um, that this is a business where all the cost, like I said, almost all the cost is the players, right? If you, those players go away and you replace them with players who play for a lot less or even for free, um, everything else about the club stays the same. Everything else. You know, the value of the club that it has within the community is still there. And and I kind of want to, you know, I, I, I always think it's something that we often forget about. Um, I uh, There's this great line, which is actually um, an ad for um, those fancy Swiss watches, the, the Patek Philippe ad, where it says, you know, um, I just sort of adapted it. It says, like, you know, you never actually own a football club. You simply look after it for the next generation, which I know is incredibly cheesy, but I think it applies here. You know, what we want, uh, what I think people should want is for clubs to survive, but not necessarily the priority should be to survive with the same quality and the same value of players that they had before. Everybody's getting hit. You know, clubs can adjust. If if there is overweight, if there is oversight, if, if we have an, assur- an assurance that, you know, people are following the rules um, and they're not doing stuff that's dubious or getting unfair advantages, which sadly we're, we're increasingly seeing um, in football. So, yeah, maybe that's why I'm not as negative as, as some people are. Yeah, I was just kind of thinking, like when when you were mentioning these these um, criticisms or these points, like it, there's a lot of parallels to almost like the the banking industry and like how, how people viewed them in like in light of 2008 and and whatnot. And in some some ways, the, the you know in terms of sustainability, and I think there were also some sort of these talks about bailing out football clubs, and, I, and it's just just that's a funny funny parallel to to make. Uh, but um, one thing we we did see is is and I, I think probably the hardest part that uh, us as like football fans and viewers and people who you know commentate on these games is the change of uh, stadium culture. And I don't know about you, but like when I'm yeah, like like if, when I go back and, and watch some some games, even from like a few months ago or now a year ago, it, now now it now it's like weird to actually see fans in the stands. And and um, I mean I know some leagues like even in, in, in Hungary there 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 have been. There have been uh, matches with fans, but now it's almost weird to see fans because now now you've become so used to not having them in the in the uh, in the stadium. And I, so I was just wanted wanted to get your take on 
whether this the stadium culture now has fundamentally changed or because because right like nothing is ever really the same once 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 you have these unfathomable unimaginable events take place right you can't really go back to the way it was before but do do you like what sort of same changes do you see or do you foresee when it comes to stadium culture and i mean again we're not asking you to predict the future but just kind of your 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 opinion on that I mean, it's a great question. It's not something I, I, I thought thought about very much. Um, I, I've been to Premier League games, um, you know, without without fans and conditions, and it's it's pretty grim and depressing. Um, I would hope that maybe one of the benefits of of living in a in a digital, more connected age is that you know maybe to some degree these supporters have have stayed together, not just you know, keeping the connection with the club and following their club, but, you know, maybe with each other for the people who are, who are members of fan groups or maybe just, you know, people who sit together, um, that, that those relationships have continued and that, you know, I'm hoping that when it's, it'll be safe to return, you know, it'll be like flipping a switch and, and everybody's going to come back in. Um, you know, I, I would hate it, absolutely hate it, if the authorities took advantage of the situation to go and, you know, I- impose some restrictions that would further, that would further hurt fan culture. I, I know there's probably more of an issue in Germany. Um, well, certainly than it is in England where, you know, most of the grounds are just very corporate these days, but um, I mean, that's not something, that's not something I would favor, but I, I hope and trust that it's not going to change so much when they return. I mean, I was recently talking to um, some people or a couple of people who are running uh, amateur clubs in Germany and and one guy who's who's running the his, his club basically a fourth division club uh, out of his car dealership uh, which was also um, I don't know was ki- kind of uh, kind of cool uh, but he talked about how he's afraid that like people will for fundamentally change or have already changed their kind of their habits um, and they they won't come back after um, maybe the, the the stadiums are open to to fans again, and there was his, his fear that that like now you know the the fifty year old dad with his fifteen uh, year old son they they do something else on on Sundays and they won't come back once um, they could come back, and you you in a in a way you already saw that. Um, I mean, I, I was watching a Wolfsburg match, a Bundesliga match, and they were allowed to have six thousand fans in, in the stadium. But they only sold four four thousand and something um, tickets. So yeah, but there's a global pandemic. Of course. I mean, I I, I don't. I mean, you know, I, I I've heard people say that. I've heard people say that, like, oh, you know, and it's true that you know people say that going to watch football games is is like a drug, right? So and once you kick the habit, once you break the habit, you don't go back to it. That's true. If you're out doing more interesting things, you know, that, that 50 year old German guy with this, and I know obviously the situation in Germany isn't as bad and you haven't had as tough lockdowns as, as elsewhere because you actually have a functioning health system and people who follow the rules unlike some countries like the one I live in. But, um, you know, what does the 50 year old hypothetical man in your, you know, do with his sons on weekend? What's he been doing? I presume he's been home watching Netflix or gaming online. And I presume he would rather be doing something else. So I guess what I'm going at is it's not like, I mean, I, I maybe I'm, I'm just being hopeful here. It's not like these people have stopped watching sports, right? 
um, or, or taking up different hobbies. I think most of these people have been stuck in their homes watching Netflix or gaming or whatever it is they do. I don't think playing board games. Um, and I would hope that they're dying to go do something else. I don't think going to football has been substituted by another leisure activity. I mean, I, again, I genuinely hope not because <laughs> I, mean, I would find that incredibly depressing if, if that were the case, if it's just like, Oh no, let's just stay home and, you know, watch uh, Tiger King or whatever. <laughs> yeah, I'm <laughs> all right. Probably, yeah. Um, I'm, I'm not. I'm not sure what 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 people are, are doing uh, these Queen days. Queen's Gambit, right? That's we're, thing, we're, we're uh, so less connected Gambit, to each yeah, other. <laughs> but, but, but look, I mean, look. Let's face it. There's no substitute for going for going to football. Like, there's nothing. There's nothing like it. You know, I I live in a country in in England where they've had this. I think very stupid three o'clock rule supposedly to protect attendances uh, where, where, you know, there's a blackout. You can't show any football between three and five fifteen on Saturdays, two forty-five and five fifteen. where the idea that, Oh, you know, if, if I play, if I put Barcelona Sevilla on television, people are going to watch that instead of going to, to watch, you know, Altrincham against Rochdale or whatever the hell. And I was like, that's nonsense. One thing is not a substitute for another thing. Going to watch a team in, and going to watch football in, in person, whether it's your team or something else, is not a substitute for watching it on television. So, I mean, going back to your friend in the car dealership, I, you know, what would be scary is if he thinks people have stopped being interested in football or in sport in general. That would really scare me. Um, that they've substituted television, perhaps, for for going to football matches. I, I, maybe I'm optimistic, but I feel less worried. I, I just don't think one is a substitute for another. Yeah, I guess so. Um, maybe we can change a little bit the direction now. And um, I think people who are also optimistic that you know fans will be still into football um, in the next decades and over the next decades uh, are those who have pitched the uh, European Super League. And we wanted to talk about about that uh, with you because you have written about the plans for the European Super League, and it's also that there's the kind of top versus bottom element or maybe what you could almost call football plutocracy um and there's there's an element in there with with the plans that have been uh, made public um a couple of weeks ago and of course we wanted to have your take or that you could give us your take on on these plans and what you know what you see as an underlying development maybe that's that's going on there because i mean it, it i don't think it came out of nowhere But it's still, I mean, we, we just talked about like what's what's going uh, on at the top and then what's with the rest, basically. And I guess a Super League, for instance, or some kind of Super League and, and these, these kinds of competitions would, of course, uh, reinforce the, the status quo of, of football and maybe that, that a status quo that won't be changed anyway. But still, I mean, there's, there's like this element that the top and the, the clubs at the top, the rich clubs um, do, try to do what they want and, you know, on their terms. So, so what's your, 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 you know, I would say your general take on, on the European Super League and the plans that have been revealed? So as I wrote in my piece, um, having talked to a ton of people, um, you know, the general sense is several said to me, if it's going to happen, it's going to happen now because clubs are, are hurting because you have a really captive audience at home, because you've got the calendar, the national match calendar expiring in 2024, because there is a belief 
that maybe you can do this with FIFA's blessing. So there's no question that there's, I think, a, a greater appetite um, for uh, for clashes between top clubs on, on a regular basis, right? That's kind of been the general trend, and I think that's been the, the success of the Champions League. I think it's also a function of the fact that the big European football brands, as we've, as we've seen in, in recent years, you know, certain clubs have been super dominant. Um, and, you know, whereas when, when you have Paris Saint-Germain playing Bayern, generally, um, you know, it's more it's more up in the air, right? Um, but when we talk about, when we talk about Super League, um, and, and, and sorry, and having said that, as we said, a lot of clubs are, are hurting and and as I was told, if it's going to happen, it's going to happen now. Um, somebody shows up with a big stack of money and says, here's some, I'm a private equity guy. Here's some guaranteed money. Let's break away and let's do this. And let's form an, an NFL style or NBA style Super League. Um, now, if that is your concept of Super League, where you know teams play home and away, I think you immediately run into uh, several big problems. Um, one obvious problem is that for those who follow American sports is if you're the NFL or the NBA, you know, you, you put, um, you put your clubs or you put your franchises in cities with enough of a catchment area with enough wealth to capitalize on. So what would happen? And, you know, the brand itself is slightly secondary. So if I'm going to do that, I might ask myself, well, do I need two teams in Madrid? Do I need two teams in Manchester when there's another super club 20 miles away down the road in Liverpool? Or don't I need a team in Moscow? Don't I need a team in Berlin? How does Berlin not have a super club team, right? Um, which would be good news for, for, for your friend Lars Windhorst, but, you know, <laughs> on the pitch. My personal you know, friend. Exactly. <laughs> um, so, you know, that is one big hurdle, right? It kind of runs counter, I think, to some degree, to the interests of those big clubs that you would think would be interested in. The other big thing is, okay, so we have an NFL-style Super League, and it's financially viable. And like the NFL, they say, aha, let's cap wages at, at 48% of projected revenue, right? Which is what the NFL does. And that way, we're all going to make money every year regardless. Aren't we clever? Well, that's really good news if you're the kind of owner that just wants to have an asset that appreciates in value, that wants to make money every year. So I hate to pick on them, but you know they lend themselves to it. If I'm Joel Glazer, I'm like, yippee, this is exactly what I want, right? And I'll get even richer doing this. And maybe maybe it applies to, to FSG at Liverpool as well. Um, but think about the decision makers at Bayern or at Barcelona, or at Real Madrid, or at Dortmund, you know, Mr. Vatske doesn't get to keep the money if Dortmund suddenly is very, very popular. Neither does Florentino Perez. You know, he's so rich, he probably doesn't need it. So then all of a sudden, I'm not getting personally wealthy, and at the same time, I'm running the risk of finishing mid-table every year in the Super League. So why would I want to be a part of this, Right. And I think that's the big counter-argument, uh, and it's a very valid counter-argument to European Super League. Moving on from all the other uh, from all the other arguments about merit, about 
you know, FIFA could potentially ban everything about destroying the Champions League. So when I hear these things come up, what I tell myself is this isn't really what they want. Nobody actually wants this kind of, of model because it would run counter to especially German um, and Spanish super clubs. And then you get into an argument of can we have one without, you know, without Spain, without Germany, without the U.S. largest economy. And, and I don't think it's viable. But it serves a purpose to see if, okay, can we get more out of what we want out of the Champions League? It becomes a bargaining chip. And I think that's how UEFA see it. And I think they look at it and they say, could we maybe go and explore like what we've done with, with EuroLeague basketball, where, you know, the, the EuroLeague, you've got, you've got certain criteria, you get multi-year licenses. Um, again, I, it changes, but I think there's 11 teams that are, I think, of 10-year licenses and some others have three-year licenses. Some others qualify on merit and they've kind of, and, and that's been very successful for basketball. Um, in Europe, but you know, basketball is Europe's second biggest sport. Um, however, still, and I think rightly so, UEFA still views this a little bit as idle talk, um, a little bit as a threat and nothing more. And I think where UEFA is in a pretty strong position is they look at it and, and, and say, well, right now, so many teams are hurting that they'll listen to anything, right? Uh, if, 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 if I show up pretending I'm, I'm a sheikh, you know, representing um, Saudi Arabia's vision fund, Joe Glazer will listen to me and I will have an hour with him and I can outline whatever I want. Um, and I think that is, that is the big difference, uh, in the current climate. And, and I think why more people are taking this more seriously than they did in the past. Yeah. Like, I mean, the interesting thing that you, that you, when you were writing about this and, and some of the things that I was reading when, about what you wrote is, is how, it's almost like the Champions League um, already does some of these things, right? Like, like I mean, I'm going to date myself as well. Like, you know, now that you 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 brought up earlier a thing that showed your age, but like I remember Berlusconi in the in, in the '90s because I was you know Milan fan, and and the whole time like this is this is a thing, right? It's like he he remember like uh, signing Jean Pierre Papin so he can just build like a, a a different team in the league and in the in the Champions League and. And people thought that would be, you know, that would be like normal, right? And and that 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 hasn't that hasn't changed, right? So it's like to me, this has always been the the like bluffing card or the, the ace up the sleeve or whatever card metaphor we want to use for these big clubs that they eventually just kind of uh, like tell tell UEFA, okay, we we need to we, we're going to form a super league and then, then you get their way, right? But I, I probably agree with you in the sense that um, uh, the the UEFA can just you know, alter uh, the, the Champions League format. And I think they already have, right? Like there's all of the automatic four spots and, and you know, expanding the Champions League and and you can just kind of make that. And I think in that sense that, that the coronavirus is, is is a great opportunity because we what we saw even just uh, the altered format of the knockouts uh, last, I guess, like August, right? Like that was a, I mean, at least commercially or ratings wise, it was a huge success of, of just playing those one single, single elimination game matches because you all kind of introduce more randomness and you can see like that the Leipzig runs and then even, you know, the teams like PSA or Lyon and Lyon is probably even a better example, but like I, I, so, so it could just be that. Right. And I think you also mentioned that the, there, there, there's so many different variables of, of why the super league could be, 
it could not be feasible, just different outcomes for people. You, you, you basically like some people just want to own a football club. Like they want to own a painting, right? Like they, yeah. they don't, they're not, they don't do it because it's just nice to have. Right. Like, and sometimes it's a, it's a function of soft power, right? It's, it's, it's what a country wants to do it for advertising. Right. So there's, there's a lot of different reasons. And I think in that sense, you cannot really impose something which, which tells them why you should own a football club. And, and uh, generally like, they should just be allowed to do whatever whatever they wanted. So, um, I I think then I think you also wrote in your piece that the other thing that you would have needed is is some sort of um, credible um, saying by uh, by a big club, so not uh, Bartomeu out out the door as he's Mike dropping his his uh, Barcelona's doing the Super League, and it doesn't seem like there's there's been much of that. It's it's always just these kind of wink wink hint hint, you know. Sometimes Karl-Heinz Rummenigge will say something, and they'll 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 meet, and then or like Florentino Perez will 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 just like leak something. But it doesn't doesn't seem like because, um, as you mentioned, like there is there is obviously a, a lot of good about playing those big matches, but at the same time, is it fun to let's say like play each of these teams like four times? And like, I think I think like we had the El Clasico like four times in it was a twenty eleven season. And I think by the third time was uh, Mourinho Guardiola. Like everybody was just like, really, like, like it's it's so so. There's there's some some elements of that as well. Um, and it's I'm, also I'm not sure. Mourinho is by nature very exhausting. He, no, that's true. Yeah, <laughs> maybe maybe if it was <laughs> five times actually in 2011. Oh um, yeah, yeah, right. Uh, but yeah, I now that said, um, you know, look. I wouldn't be surprised if in the next five to ten years um, it happens in other confederations. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if CONCACAF Major League Soccer mergers with with Liga MX to create, you know, a de facto Super League, um, you know, with involving the U.S., Canada, and Mexico. Um, Johnny Fantino has hinted that maybe that would be a good driver for Africa. Um, you know, if you had a pan-African Super League, maybe they could do a better job of hanging on to their... It would be easier for them to hang on to their talents, for example. Maybe we could help the girl commercially. They help the game grow commercially. You know, I always make this point about the women's game too, right? It's not written in stone that football around the world has to necessarily develop the way it has developed in Europe and in South America you know, the, the, sort of the first two countries to really grow the game. Um, maybe what's right for Europe and South America isn't right in other parts of the world. Maybe there's a better way or, or right for the women's game, come to think of it, you know. Um, so I, I think we need to maintain an openness to it. But when it comes to the European Super League, and, you know, we've seen some of the operators involved, this isn't about growing the game. This is about, you know, assuring your dominance, assuring that the huge built-in advantage you have over other clubs remains the same, assuring you you can triangulate on the tensions between UEFA and FIFA to cut yourself a better deal for you and your football club. Um, and, and I think it's as simple as that. I mean, that brings up, uh, I think, another topic that was... I mean, I think somewhat loosely connected to the European Super League, maybe just because of timing. Um, but there was the project Big Picture in England, where I think we had 
somewhat of the same thinking behind what was proposed was that and it wasn't necessarily about making the the game more entertaining. I mean, it was more about all right, we have a government governance in place, and we we as like the big the major clubs, we want to make sure that we will stay there where we are right now. And and um, I, um, I mean, obviously these plans fall through, but um, I mean that was like the timing issue, right? Or the timing thing that then the European Super League was um came up there was revealed uh shortly thereafter. Um, after the vote was taken on the on the big picture, um, but I, I guess um, I know what what you make of it. But um, is it also? But to me, it's at least somewhat surprising that like some of these concepts that have been brought forward to the public that are very. I mean, it's very obvious and very transparent what the big clubs try to do, but they don't feel like there's any kind of either political backlash. And political, I mean, there can be like really like like legislative um, um, backlash, um, policy making backlash, and but also not really backlash from fans that they say, well, that's you know we 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 don't want that, and um, even we as like fans of club X, Y, and Z, we don't want that. So what what do you make of that? That like these clubs can just you know like Karlheinz Rummenigge or maybe Liverpool and Man United in England, they can just. You know, go out there and like propose these plans and don't fear any any kind of any sort of backlash. So well, look, I think a lot of it has to do with the cultural context, right? Um, you know, in in Britain, they went through Margaret Thatcher in in the eighties, uh, which whichever way you, you know, whether you liked her or not, you know, I think that nobody's going to deny that that brought with it. Um, you know, uh, a big change. You know, this is somebody who made the point that there's no such thing as society. There's just individuals, right? Um, and that's created a situation where um, football fans in English grounds are their customers, right? Um, in the same way that, you know, when you go down to, you know, your local supermarket, you know, you're not a fan of the supermarket. You go there, you might like the supermarket, um, but the supermarket caters to you as long as you're there buying stuff, right? You don't have any kind of ownership or, you know, even metaphorically of the supermarket. You're purely customer. And if you don't like the way the supermarket works, you'll go to another supermarket if there is one nearby, you know? Um, I, that is kind of the attitude. That's why fan groups in England, um, you know, certainly relative to to Germany, but not just Germany relative to, to Italy, you know, there, there's no organized ultras movement here. Um, there's no, obviously, again, the model in Germany is different where you, you know, in a very from club to club, about fan representative, you don't have organized fan groups, not to the same degree. You know, look at Newcastle where you have all these passionate fans and yet they're still stuck with Mike Ashley. You know, the one, the one exception you might make in England is obviously what happened at Liverpool when, when they removed or, or, you know, they helped remove the, the, the previous ownership groups of, of, of Hicks and Gillette. But that's really, really rare. Um, and I think also increasingly the, the, the sort of the direct action by fans matters less and less because increasingly, you know, if I'm Manchester United, yes, I value the 70,000 who come to Old Trafford and whatever. Um, and by the way, we saw it there as well, right? Remember the green and gold and, and the, the, the red knights or whatever they were called and all those anti-glazer protests, you know, what happened? A bunch of fans left and, formed FC United of Manchester and 
David Beckham held up a held up a green and gold scarf, and nobody likes the Glazers. But you know, the Glazers don't care if you like them or not. They just care that you continue to support United um, and all those fans around the world who follow United. Um, they're removed by it. They don't necess- Many of them don't necessarily care, and, and it's reflected in in United's numbers, which remain really, really good. So um, I think that is a big part of it. Um, uh, There was a general public outcry against this, against what Liverpool and United were doing. I I think part of the reason that it didn't get further was that, you know, the the natural opposition was obviously the, you know, the, the mid to small size uh, Premier League clubs um, and the big championship clubs, right? Those were the ones who were probably most opposed to it. Everybody else, many of the clubs in the football leagues that are just desperate are saying, oh, look, free money for life. Yeah, I'll take it, right? Um, but I, I also wonder, um, clubs like City, like Chelsea, like Spurs, um, when they saw this, they're kind of wondering, okay, well, you know, sure, if we change some of these rules and down the road we change the distribution, maybe we'll get twice as much money, maybe five times as much money. But then Manchester United will get 20 times as much money. And Liverpool will get 10 times as much money. Because those are objectively bigger brands. And they know that. So once you open that Pandora's box of of weighting heavier to the, the, the bigger brands, you know, there's, there's going to be one brand that's bigger than everybody else. And in England, it's two brands that are bigger than everybody else. In fact, objectively, United is much bigger than, than Liverpool even, right? So then I think they take a step back and say, guys, are we sure we want to do this? Are we sure that, you know, we're not going to become, you know, yeah, we'll, we'll grow, but the other guys will grow 10 times as much. Um, and I think that was part of it. And that was part of the reason that, that it came up short. Yeah, I mean, I mean the, the like the, question that I want to ask you and sort of knowing some of the answers to it in, in just in terms of project big picture that there was you know at least on a governmental level some opposition to it like I even like I think Boris Johnson came, came out against it which is which is just strange but um, like and then the question I want to ask is uh, is there a time like do you see some sort of a breaking point when governments will intervene or is there like no recourse for them I know you have uh written a lot about and 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 you you, you seem to um be be uh talk you, you seem to say that fifa needs to get involved in, at, at some level even even when, when it comes to the super league you mentioned but even just uh, in terms of these kind of uh, to, to mitigate the situation and and i right, like that that's uh I'm, I'm not sure how that would happen just in terms of you know whether governments can even can even do that can you can you just maybe uh right, give so, your thoughts uh, on that yeah, so I'm not a lawyer. When I talk about FIFA getting involved, yeah. the kind of extreme closed Super League that we were talking about can only happen if FIFA give their blessing, right? And there are some conspiracy theorists that theorize, oh, look, yes, we'll have a European Super League, we'll have the African Super League I talked about before, and CONCACAF, it's not hard to do one in South American, and then the winners will all play in, in the FIFA, in an expanded FIFA Club World Cup, so... FIFA's on board. If FIFA doesn't say, okay, fine, let's do this, then you have a situation where all these clubs will be barred from playing in their domestic leagues. All these players will be 
barred from playing in the World Cup, they can make it extremely difficult for these clubs to then transfer to, um, you know, back into the, the, the football system, transfer to other clubs. So, you know, we're talking about going rogue and going totally breakaway, right? Um, in terms of governance and getting involved in something like, uh, you know, the regulation of, of, of how you divide up the TV money, how you structure your football pyramid. Um, okay, I, and I'm not a lawyer here, but um, governments could pass laws. And in fact, they have passed laws. One of the reasons, for example, you know, here in England on, on the television side is, you know, they, they're, they're, there are laws that say that, you know, one broadcaster can't have a monopoly. Um, in Italy, for example, the law on the distribution of television rights and collective bargaining um, and the collective sale of TV rights rather than individual sale of TV rights, that's codified in law. I think in Spain as well. Um, I'm pretty sure in Germany where you like your lo- having a lot of laws, I wouldn't be surprised if there's a law there too governing that. So, yeah, so governments um, at some point can get, can get involved. Um, they have to be careful though. Because equally, government getting directly involved without the blessing of UEFA and FIFA, uh, UEFA and FIFA could say, well, this is political interference, right? Um, and we've seen that happen in some countries, and most recently Trinidad, in the past it's been Iran. But, you know, FAs do occasionally get suspended if they allow government um, government to, quote-unquote, interfere. Um I think in this case, in, in the case of Project Big Picture, you know, if it had gone forward, I think they could have turned around and said, well, hang on a second, Mr. Government, you're saying you don't you don't like this setup, but here, look, we're backed by the six biggest clubs in the country representing, you know, whatever, 30, 40% of the fans. And because we have this provision to support all these football league clubs, well, you know, out of 72 football league clubs, we have 60 of the 72, right, including all the little guys in League One and League Two. They're all in favor of it. So how can you come to us and accuse us of, you know, and it would have been a very, you know, I don't know that government could have, you know, it would be pretty pretty drastic and government here likes to be pretty laissez-faire on certain issues. So I think it would have been very difficult um, for the government to step in. Right. Well, I mean, that's, I, I think that like, it sounds like a last resort to, in a way, right? I mean, or uh, like when you, when you're not in favor of some of these plans that then you, like the, the last idea you have is like basically, all right, that the government has to do something. Yeah. And look, I mean, I think in general, the attitude towards, towards governments is, look, if you think about the Premier League, you have 20 clubs, you have, I think, 14 foreign owners, something like that. And by the way, um, those six big six clubs, not a coincidence, five of them have foreign owners and the sixth one, Tottenham, yeah, the guy's English, but he's a tax exile who's been living in the Bahamas for the last 30 years. So I think we can safely consider him uh, not just foreign, but also somebody who clearly doesn't feel the need to give back to the British government in terms of taxes. So put these things together, you know, I don't know how much they would have cared. And, and the risk when governments get involved and regulate things in business and in life is that, you know, all of a sudden, Mr. Abramovich, Mr. Mansour, Mr. Glazer say, you know what? You keep coming and messing with my business. Well, maybe I'll go and invest somewhere else. Maybe I'll find a more business-friendly environment um, to go and, and spend my money. 
And, you know, that's always been the counter argument that, that people would put forward. Absolutely. Um, Gabriel, it was really great talking to you. Maybe we can pick up on that uh, at another point in time. Uh, maybe when there are a number of developments in in European and world football, because you, of course, have so much knowledge about um, all these all these topics we have now discussed uh, for the past hour. Um, so thank you for your time. No, it's my pleasure, boys. Thank you for uh, for having me on. Great. Um, Gabriel, you're at Marcotti on Twitter. Abel is at BundesPL on Twitter. I'm CC underscore Eckner on Twitter. If you want to support us, please visit patreon.com slash the football pod. And for now, we are out. <laughs>